Well, good morning. Well, uh, greetings here at uh, Crown Point. And uh, for the first time in a very long time, I get to greet our uh, brothers and sisters at the Cedar Lake campus and uh, at our HP campus. So greetings to, uh, to everybody, as well as those joining online today. Uh, I'm, I'm privileged to be here with you and uh, open God's word uh, with you today. It's been 23 years since I was an associate pastor. Hard to believe that. I gotta tell you, I love being a senior pastor. I love being an associate pastor. I love both of those. Uh, one of the great things about being a senior pastor is I get to do a lot of preaching. One of the great things about being an associate pastor is I got to listen to a lot of preaching. And I actually miss those days. Uh, now all I hear is the sound of my own voice. And frankly, I don't know how you put up with it, but thank you again today for putting up with the sound of my voice. But for five years, I was a, uh, an associate pastor at College Park Church in Indianapolis. I'm going way back into the 90s, and in case you're wondering, that's the 1990s, nothing before that. But uh, there at that church, I was introduced to expository preaching, and the senior pastor of the church was a man by the name of Kimber Kaufman. And Kimber was a very good preacher, and he was exceptionally good in the Old Testament. In fact, in the five years that I was there, uh, Kimber preached through, from Joshua, I think through Kings, if not Chronicles, and basically built College Park, by God's grace, into a very large church by preaching from the Old Testament. I was astounded in uh, my years there at how practical, how insightful, how helpful was the Old Testament. And Kimber, uh, the pattern was predictable. He would, uh, especially in narrative preachings, narrative sections, he would tell the story, and he was a remarkable storyteller, just would draw you in. And then when the story, the chapter was done, every week he would put up the same verse from Romans. And he would read the verse, and he would say, okay, now let's see what this chapter in the Old Testament has to say to us today. The same verse which is, by the way, the verse that we are going to look at today, was the verse he put up week after week after week. This one verse that summarizes the role of the Old Testament in the life of the New Testament believer. I wonder if you've ever even asked that question, like why do we have an Old Testament? Why do we have a New Testament? Uh, after the service today, you go ahead and look for that white page in between Malachi and Matthew, and you'll see it says the New Testament, and that little gap there represents 400 years between the end of Old Testament Revelation and the beginning of New Testament with the incarnation of Jesus. But what is the Old Testament, and what does even testament mean? I mean, maybe you've never even asked that question. Testament is a, it's a legal term, like we say somebody's last will and testament. That's the, the idea of that. We could just as easily call the Old Testament the Old Covenant and call the New Testament the New Covenant. But we call it the Old Testament, the Old Testament and the New Testament. Did you know that the Old Testament is three quarters of all of the special revelation that God has given to mankind? It is three quarters, 75%, of the entire Bible. What's it there for? What's the role of the Old Testament? Well, after today, I'm hoping everybody online, all the campuses, everybody here at Crown Point, we all understand this is why it's there. 
and this is what God intends from it. So here's our verse, just one verse, Romans 15. Here is what the Apostle Paul writes. He says this, For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. May God speak to us from his word today. As you know, because we've been in uh, Romans 14, now in chapter 15 for some time, this is a whole section about Christian liberty. This is about uh, God's people in the church and not important areas getting along and appreciating and being considerate to one another. Indeed, it's really a section about love. And then you get to this verse, 15 verse 4, and it's like Paul goes off on this rabbit trail. In fact, we might want to say to Paul, maybe you could say this in heaven, hey, Paul, now why did you do that in chapter 15, verse 4? Because it, it kind of broke the, the train of thought a little bit. Why did you insert that verse there? Well, this verse is a parenthesis. Are you familiar with the parentheses? It's the thing we use in a sentence when we want to say something sort of unrelated, maybe related, but kind of unrelated. We put it in a parenthesis. And this is a parenthesis, an apostolic parenthesis. Uh, and, and we note that Paul quotes the Old Testament 80 plus times in the book of Romans. Why does he decide in this case, after he's quoted from Psalm 69, uh, about the, our sin, our reproaches that against God being put on Jesus, why does he choose this time to say, you know what, let me just go on a little parenthetical thought here and explain to you the role of the Old Testament. Well, we don't exactly know. But this is what he does. He freelances a little bit and explains in one sentence the role of the Old Testament in the life of the New Testament believer. Look again how he begins. For whatever was written in former days was written. Okay? Whatever was written. Obviously, he's not talking about anything that was written by anybody, to anybody, for any purpose. He's not extolling Homer or Aristotle or some other ancient writer. No, he is just quoted from the Old Testament. So what he is saying here from the Psalms, what he's saying here is whatever was written in Psalm 69 and whatever was written in Psalms in general and whatever was written in the Old Testament in the past, this is what I'm now talking about. All of the Old Testament scriptures, for whatever was written in former days was written. Let's just pause for a moment and give thanks for the fact that the Bible was written down. Aren't we glad that we have a written Word of God. Who wrote this? Well, in one sense, we could say the Old Testament writers wrote the Old Testament. And we could say the same thing about the New Testament writers. We could say that about Paul writing Romans. And indeed, when they wrote, they were, they were writing. But this is now the wonderful doctrine of the inspiration of Scripture, which says that as those biblical authors were writing, they were simultaneously writing what they wanted and exactly what God wanted them to write as well. That's why we look at this and we say, isn't it great to have the word of man? No, okay? You have that when you get an envelope in the mail. It's wonderful to have the word of God in our hands. And this is how God inspired, we use that term, inspired the writers to write what he wanted them to write. No, nowhere better explained than in 2 Peter 1. Look at this. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture came from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along, what? By the Holy Spirit. 
We believe that the entire Bible, but specifically he's talking here about the Old Testament, that the Old Testament writings are inspired by God, that when we read the Old Testament, we are reading what David wrote in the Psalms and what Moses wrote in Deuteronomy, but we are also reading exactly what God wanted to reveal to us. We believe in the inspiration of God's holy scriptures, and we're so thankful for that. So the result is that all of Scripture bears a divine stamp, and by the way, authority with it. It is the Word of God. Here's another uh, uh, key passage on this, 2 Timothy 3.16. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. What is Paul referring to there? He is referring to the Old Testament. In principle, it applies to the New Testament, but he's talking about the Old Testament, that all scripture is inspired by God. All of it is there to equip us for every good work that God would have us to do. And we're so thankful that it's written down. You realize if it wasn't written down, it'd just be like, okay, I heard grandma who said this about that, and you know, like this sort of verbal testimony. But no, it's written down. I can read it. 300 years ago, they could read it. 500 years ago, they could read it. Our, our grandchildren will be able to read the word of God. What a blessing that is. I think what is often lost on us is we read in the, in the New Testament, we read about the Bible, is that in general, when the, when the New Testament talks about the scriptures, it's talking about the Old Testament. You realize this, I hope, that very few people in the first century ha even had an Old Testament scroll. These scrolls, I had, I had somebody tell me recently, these scrolls, like one scroll, one Dead Sea scroll of the Old Testament is like 30 feet long, okay? They're massive. This isn't something that you just sort of had in the closet. I mean, this was, and, and regular people did not have a copy of the Bible in the first century. These were held in the synagogue. These were, these were very treasured you know, things uh, in, in, the, in the synagogue. But they had the Old Testament. They didn't have the New Testament. In the first century, there was you know, this letter circulating over here that Paul wrote to the Ephesians. And somebody maybe has a copy of the Gospel of Mark because they, you know, Mark's friends with my mom and she passed it on here. And, you know, there were these, these letters and these Gospels that were circulating around, but nobody in the first century had the New Testament. When they read the Bible for them, they were reading the Old Testament. Those 27 books in the New Testament were not, we talk about canonized, they were not identified as being scripture until somewhere in the late fourth century. So get this, Jesus never read the New Testament. Peter never read the New Testament. Paul never read the New Testament. None of the apostles ever read the New Testament. They might have read this book and maybe this letter, and, but what did they have? They had the Old Testament. The Bible of the first century church was the Old Testament. And therefore, we find in this something that is, for the first century Christian, indeed a treasure. And what I'm going to say to you, this ought to be a treasure for us to understand why we have it and what's the role of the Old Testament. And so Paul here now, in this little parenthesis, this little uh, rabbit trail, tangent, can you give me another synonym? <laughs> Off he goes now on a little vamp on what is the role of the Old Testament? 
And he gives a tribute to the value of the Old Testament. And what he says here is there are three incredible blessings that God has for New Testament believers in the treasure of the Old Testament. And what are they? He says it is instructive, it is encouraging, and it is hope-giving. It is instructive, encouraging, and hope-giving. Look again at the verse. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction. Get that. It's the first thing mentioned. That Old Testament, that first three quarters of your Bible is there by God's will to teach us something. You say, well, what? Okay. What am I, what am I, what am I learning here? Well, in the Old Testament, we learn who we are. Sometimes we have teenagers that, you know, they're like, I've got to go off and I've got to, I've got to figure out who I am. No, just read the Old Testament. The Old Testament will tell you who you are. You are a human being made in the image of God, made for the glory of God. That's who you are. Just like everybody else, all the other seven billion people, save yourself you know, uh, backpacking across uh, the Appalachian Trail or something. Just read the Old Testament. It tells us who we are. We were created by God. We're image bearers of God. Our purpose is to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Where do we get that? The Old Testament. Our future is described as an eternity, that we are eternal beings that will spend eternity somewhere. Now, the New Testament clarifies that as heaven and hell. The Old Testament uses words like sheol and things like that. But it describes the fact that when we die, that's not it for us. There, we are eternal souls. We learn that in the Old Testament. But we could add so much more, like God's purpose for gender, marriage, family, government, law, morality, worship, ethics, and many other things are all discovered in the Old Testament. We also need to bear in mind that the Old Testament itself is, an, is a, a work of literature. You read the Old Testament and there are genres of literature, varying ways of describing truth. And all of it is a kind of tribute to art and beauty and human creativity. You know, when we read the Old Testament, we sing the Psalms with David. We sit in prison with Joseph. We lament in sackcloth and ashes with Jeremiah. And we delight in marital intimacy with Solomon. And we glean wisdom from Proverbs. And we stand in awe with Moses at Mount Sinai, and a host of other things. You read through the Old Testament, it takes you into these key moments in redemptive history, and all of it is instructive. All, if you just didn't know nothing about nothing, and you read the Old Testament, you could, you'd get a pretty good theology, and a pretty good awareness of who I am, and why I'm here, and what life's all about. We find that in the Old Testament. What a treasure it is. But here are a few essential themes of instruction. What do we get from the Old Testament? Let's just start with the obvious one, God. God. If there's a theme in the Old Testament, it's God. <laughs> Amen? <laughs> what a foundational truth it is that God exists. How does, the, how does the Bible begin? In the beginning, God, right? It's the, uh, in the beginning. Fourth verse, fourth word in the Bible is that there is a God. There is a divine being. The Old Testament is about God. He is the self-existent one. He self-names him. He names himself Yahweh. 
What does that mean? The eternal one, the eternal I am. I am the existent one. This is the God who reveals himself to Adam and Eve as they are walking in the garden. This is the God who appears to Moses in the, in the burning bush. This is the God who acts on behalf of his people in the Exodus. And what do we learn about God? You, can't, you read the Old Testament and you discover that he's there. That there is a God that is there. He transcends creation. He is the creator of all that is, blunting Hinduism and Buddhism and the pantheistic religions of the world. No, God transcends creation. Creation is not God. He speaks. He speaks. He's not out there from a distance. Sorry, Bette Midler. He is a God who speaks, who reveals himself. He talks to Adam and Eve. He writes down in stone tablets his law. He judges the Babylonian king by writing in the wall of his palace. He is a God who speaks the world, the universe, into existence. What powerful being must this be who just speaks the galaxies? And here they are. We find that this God is a moral God. He is holy. He is a God who judges sin and did so dramatically in the Garden of Eden. How much we learn about God when one sin brings death into the cosmos. He is that holy, holy, holy. The Lord God Almighty. But gloriously, we find that God is also a saving God. He is a God who both judged the world in the flood and saved the world in the ark. He is a God that loves his people. And the word that he uses to describe the kind of love that he has for his people is the Hebrew word hesed. And what does that word mean? Steadfast covenantal love. It's all over in the Old Testament. God wants us to understand what he's like. And he says to us as his people, I hesed you. I am steadfast, covenantal, loving towards those who are my people. What a blessing that is. This God of the Old Testament. We find that he has benevolent love for all of humanity and even sent Jonah to the wicked Ninevites, the Assyrians, the most hated people on the planet in order to bring salvation to them. So on and on we could go. But the central figure of everything, and specifically the Old Testament, is God, Yahweh. And we discover that our primary purpose is to know him, to love him, and to enjoy him forever. God is the main theme of the Old Testament. But there's more. Let's talk about salvation history, okay? Salvation history. You read through the Old Testament, what do we learn here? It is, it's much more than just dates and times. This is what was so boring about, you know, 10th grade history class, where, you know, this date, this happened, this date, that happened, this country started then, and this, that, and the other. Okay, that's not that uh, interesting. Some of you perhaps find that interesting. I don't mean to offend. And I love history myself, but I love people. I love biography. I love the story of what has happened. And that's what the Old Testament provides for us, is not simply dates and times, but a story, a salvation story, a history. It's a story that is told for a purpose, and there is this redemptive, melodic 
tune that runs through the Old Testament, keeps going in the New Testament for sure, but it runs in the Old Testament as you read through the scriptures. You know, if all we had was the New Testament, we would wonder as we began reading the New Testament, what's all the hubbub about, right? Angels show up, you know, unto you is born this day in the city of David, a, a savior who is Christ the Lord. You'd read that and go, so? Like, or like, wh- why does this matter? And who, who is he? And there's a God and he has a son and he was born and he's a savior and there's sin and like all of that, all that prequel part of the story, we get from the Old Testament. If you don't have the Old Testament, New Testament don't make sense, right? How do we come to know this story? Who is God? What he's like? Why we need a savior? Where death came from? Why are there all these cemeteries around town? Could somebody please explain that to me? That's the Old Testament. How about the whole concept of the shedding of blood for redemption? When Jesus talks about that at length, you read the book of Hebrews or something, you're like, what? Blood, redemption, the average person in the street would have no idea, I don't understand that. But you read the Old Testament, you're like, aha! Now I understand the cross. Now I understand why Jesus had to die. How do we understand holiness, wrath, righteousness? These are all truths of the New Testament that find their basis and and story in the Old Testament. Listen to one theologian who describes the difference between the Old Testament and the New. The Old Testament may be likened to a chamber richly furnished but dimly lit. The introduction of light brings into it nothing which was not in it before, but it brings out into clearer view much of what is in it but was only dimly or even not at all perceived. That's a fancy way of saying that that, uh, you, you, you turn the light on slowly and all of a sudden you're seeing things that were already there but you didn't realize that they were there. That's for the New Testament. The mystery of the Trinity, as one example, is not revealed in the Old Testament, but the mystery of the Trinity underlies the Old Testament revelation and here and there almost comes into view. Thus, the Old Testament revelation of God is not corrected by the fuller revelation that follows it, but only perfected, extended, and enlarged. And with this, I want to address a common misconception. I bet there's probably somebody here who would even say this. After this message, you wouldn't dare say it, but you probably right now say this. There are people that say, you know, the reason I don't like the Old Testament is I look at the God of the Old Testament and he's angry. And he's wrathful. And those Israelites, they go and they wipe out the Philistines and they wipe out all the the Ites people. And it just seems so like, I just, I don't like the Old Testament God. I much prefer the New Testament God who sent his son to die on the cross for my sins. And so I'm not gonna read the Old Testament because I like the God of the New Testament better. I don't know if that resonates in your mind at all or in your heart, but there are people that, that basically do that if not say that. And the problem with this is, of course, that God does not change. It's not like there's a God of the Old Testament and then he sort of got his act together and became the God of the New Testament. No, it's the same God. God doesn't change as you read the redemptive story, but the way that he relates to us does. The means by which he relates to us does. No longer is it bulls and goats and a tabernacle and a temple and a Levitical system. Now it is the blood of Jesus Christ shed on the cross for us that is the basis of our relationship with with him. That's why Jesus in the upper room says he holds up the cup 
of, of the Lord's Supper, and he said, this cup represents the new covenant of my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. What was he saying? He was saying, now there is this new way that God is relating to you, disciples, and it is, it is through me. It is the new covenant of my blood. So it is not that God changes from the Old Testament to the new, but the way that we relate to him does. And praise God, it is through Jesus. That's why that curtain was torn from t- in two from top to bottom. Is that God was saying, from now on, I'm coming to you through my son, Jesus Christ. And by the way, I would say, if, that, if that's the way that you think about things, have you read Revelation? Like, if you don't like a God who exterminates the ites in the Old Testament, how do you feel about a God who judges literally billions to hell forever? You don't escape judgment by not reading the Old Testament. There's actually far more judgment and a forever judgment in the new. There actually was a uh, second century Heretic, if you were to go to seminary and take classes on church history, you would learn about a guy named Marcion. And Marcion was a guy basically who did that. He looked at the Old Testament, he goes, ew, I don't like the Old Testament. I much more like the New Testament. And he basically carved the Old Testament out of his Bible and encouraged other people to do that. And the, the, uh, the early church fathers said, you know what? That's not only a bad idea, that is heresy. He was judged a heretic for carving out the Old Testament. And my concern is that maybe we don't have heresy here or a clear heretic, but possibly a kind of functional heresy where all I do is read the New Testament or spend my time in the New Testament where we're a church, all we do is preach in the New Testament because we like the God of the New Testament and we functionally practice a heresy by ignoring the Old Testament. A functional Marcionism in the church. We don't want that. Why? Because we believe the Old Testament and the New Testament is God's divine revelation to us. And there is things in here for our instruction that we need to know, that we need to learn, and that we benefit from. And certainly understanding salvation history is one of them. But a few others I just got to throw in here when I'm talking about the Old Testament. What do we learn in, uh, in the Old Testament? Here's some major themes. We learn about law, that our God is righteous. We learn about the Exodus, that our God sets us free. We learn about monarchy, that God rules and reigns forever. We learn about a promised land, that our God gives us a home. We learn about covenant, and some of you are gonna wish i talked more about covenant here, and it's certainly a major theme. But we come to find out that God is a God who makes promises to us. We learn about prophecy, that our God is a God who delights to tell us the future, because he knows what's going to happen. And of course, we have the major theme of the Old Testament, which is the Messiah. These and many other things tell us who God is, what he is like, who we are, what our purpose in earth is, what life is all about, what destiny awaits us, why we so desperately need a savior. In fact, a significant theme of the Old Testament is longing, longing. You read through the Old Testament, there's like a cloud that hangs over the entire section, those three quarters of the Bible, because they talk about, there's this sense that it's not the way it's supposed to be yet, and the person who's going to make things right hasn't shown up yet, and there's this sense of longing for and a yearning for when God is going to make things right, and when this Messiah is going to come. 
But the Old Testament people, they never, they never saw the Messiah. They were like Moses, always on the other side of the Jordan River, looking across the river and seeing the promised land, but not allowed to get there. Hebrews talks about how they were, you know, they saw these things from a distance. They, they longed for them, but they never actually realized full messianic fulfillment. They hope, they long, they look. This longing is summarized in a hymn we might sing in about a month. Come thou long expected Jesus, born to set thy people free. From our fears and sins release us, let us find our rest in thee. Israel's strength and consolation, hope of all the earth thou art, dear desire of every nation, joy of every longing heart. Amen. Amen. And that's what Paul's getting at here. For whatever was written in the past was written for our instruction. What a blessing it is to learn from the Old Testament. So instruction's the first role. Secondly, he highlights encouragement. Anybody here not in need of some encouragement today? Anybody here think, I'm, I'm hoping I get discouraged today. That's why I came to church today. No, we all need encouragement. And Paul here says the, the Old Testament is filled with encouragement. Here's the text again. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures. And friends, this is where I think the Old Testament shines so spectacularly is in the whole area of encouragement. I mean, uh, it's so encouraging. Now you say, wait a second, I've tried to read through the Old Testament. Are you saying that all of it is encouraging? I would say all of it can be encouraging, but some of it is perhaps more encouraging than others. If you've ever tried to read through the Old Testament, man, you can get, you drown in those genealogies, can't you? You know, so-and-so begets so-and-so, and so-and-so begets so-and-so, and you want to say to Paul, I know you said this was for my encouragement, but it's not working right now. <laughs> or you get into Ezekiel or something like that, and man, that book just, it's, it's like, uh, it just goes on forever. You think, if you're reading through the Bible in a year, you think, am I ever going to get through Ezekiel? It's so long. So is every passage of the Old Testament as practical, pastoral, devotional as every other passage? Obviously the answer to that is no. But what we can say is that all of it is inspired by God and all of it can be encouraging to God's people. You say, well how? Let me give you a few ways. Number one, it provides truth for life. Truth for life. The entire Old Testament is divine revelation. It reveals the character of God, his purpose, and his glory. And as such, it provides something that I can live by. This is why David, if you, if, uh, when we're all done here, go read Psalm 119. Go memorize Psalm 119, and then come quote it to me uh, next Sunday, and I'll have a sticker for you. Um, but Psalm 119 is, Paul, is David's tribute to the law of God. And he delights in it in every possible way. But one of the ways that he delights in it is this very point. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. What's he saying there? He's saying your word, it's, 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 it's like a flashlight. Remember the flashlights? Some of the young people are like, what's a flashlight? It's not just a button on your phone, okay? It's actually something that cast light that you need when it's dark. Your word is like a flashlight. 
It helps me to see where I'm going. And aren't we living in dark times? Aren't we living in a time where, were it not for divine revelation, we would be lost like everybody else, wondering what's going on? But no, the Bible tells us and provides for us direction and truth for life. Secondly, the Bible, the Old Testament, gives us encouraging examples that both warn us and inspire us. I have loved the Old Testament since I was a kid. My, my parents would do family devotions, and I, I look back on that, and I, I, I think I was fairly good on the Old Testament stories, even as a young person, uh, because of that, and have known about many of these people for most of my life. But what a wonderful blessing it is to read in the Old Testament and to see people a lot like us, right? People a lot like us. And what are they constantly doing? They're succeeding, and then they're failing. They're good, and then they're sinning, and sometimes repenting, and often being you know, forgiven and restored. In other words, there's just this constant cycle of up and down, and you read through about these people, and you think, man, that it reminds me of somebody I can't quite put my finger on, who this person is reminding me of. And the story of their life, who it's reminding me of. And of course, you know what I'm getting at. These people are just like you and me. And they're living lives just like you and me. Albeit without some of the miraculous flooding and such, but they're trying to be faithful in the day-to-day life like you and I are trying to be faithful in the day-to-day life. And I I love teaching. Like, I, I love propositional teaching. But don't we all need sometimes living, breathing examples. Can't we sort of learn things from living, breathing examples in ways that we can't from just straight didactic, propositional, A, B, C, D, E. Okay, tell me a story. Okay, now, and indeed, so much in the Old Testament. Don't hate your brother like Cain. Build a preposterous ark if God tells you to. Listen to God and do what he says, even if your name isn't Abraham. God judges sexual immorality. Look at Sodom if you can find it. Even when things are dire, God sends heroes, cue judges. But don't look too carefully because all of them have flaws. The great David is an example of the destruction of lust and the power of confession and forgiveness. Elijah wins the battle against the 400 prophets of Baal at Mount Carmel. And then Jezebel says, you're dead. And he runs like a schoolgirl. Who can't relate to that? Esther was courageous, and God used her wonderfully. Dare to be a Daniel, dare to stand alone, dare to always do what's right, dare to, I forget the rest of it. It's been a while since I sang that song. Apparently it's been a long time for you as well. Perhaps you should read the Old Testament, people. That's my point. But it's so encouraging, and it instructs us, and it gives us what? And this is the third thing that Paul says is the role of the Old Testament in the life of the believer. Not only does it give us instruction, not only does it give us encouragement, but it gives us hope. It gives us hope. What is hope? Is hope about the past? I don't need to hope about the past. The past is done. 
right? It's settled, you know, that, that horse has left the barn. Do I need hope for this moment right now? Not really, because I'm living this moment right now. Hope is always future-oriented. Hope is always about tomorrow, next month, next year. Hope is about the future. And look what he says here. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. You need a little hope today? I'm gonna guess most of us do. What's the equation here? Notice what he says. Instruction from the Old Testament plus encouragement from the Old Testament equals hope. Hope for what? Hope for the future. And the orientation of the Old Testament is always off of our present circumstances and always on a future that God has placed promises and specifically a person, the long-awaited Messiah. In fact, the connection between the Old Testament and the New Testament, in a summary, is Jesus. Jesus is the hermeneutic of both. How does Matthew, for example, begin his gospel? Does he just say, well, there was Mary and there was Joseph and they were on a donkey and off they went to Bethlehem she was pregnant and yada, yada. Is that how he starts his gospel? No. How does Matthew begin his gospel? He begins by connecting the Old Testament with the New and the genealogies of Jesus. Here are the words of Matthew 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. See the bridge from the Old to the New? It is Jesus Christ. Indeed, the Old Testament, if it's doing anything, it is setting the stage for the glory of the incarnation of Jesus. In fact, in many ways, you cannot understand the Old Testament properly without Jesus. There's so often when you're reading in the New Testament that you're like, ah, oh, now I get it. You ever do that maybe in a, some you know, trilogy movie series or something where all of a sudden in, in, in act three of the play or whatever, all of a sudden act one makes sense because now, now I get what they were doing there. They were kind of foreshadowing something that was going to happen up here, but I had to get to here before I would understand that. Are you with me? Okay, we've all had that. And that's what the Bible is in many respects, is that you, you gotta read the New Testament in order to suddenly understand the Old Testament. But guess what? You gotta read the Old Testament to understand the New Testament. Or to quote the great theologian Augustine, he said, in the Old Testament, the New, Testi the new is concealed. In the New, the Old is revealed. And what does it reveal most? It reveals Jesus. Let me take you to the road to Emmaus and the days after, or in the days after, the day after Sunday that, that Jesus was resurrected. And a couple disciples were on the, on the path and all of a sudden somebody they don't know comes walking up next to them. And we know as we read Luke, it's Jesus. But they don't know that it's Jesus. And he says, so uh, what are you talking about? Well, we're talking about the coronavirus. It's what everybody's talking about. Only in that time, they were talking about 
Jesus. It's what everybody's talking about. And they, they look at him dumbfounded like, what do you mean, we're, what, we're, what are we talking about? We're talking about what everybody's talking about. Jesus of Nazareth, who did many mighty miracles and was a great teacher. And, and, uh, and uh, the religious leaders, they, they killed him. But some of the women have said that they've seen him alive and we don't know what to think of this. This is what we're talking about. And this is what Jesus says to them. Oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. The greatest sermon ever preached, the greatest all about him sermon of all time was there on the Emmaus Road to those disciples as Jesus literally exegetes himself out of the Old Testament and explains to them who he is in the Old Testament scriptures. And I wouldn't pretend to be able to replicate that, but it might have sounded something like this. In Genesis, I was the ram at Abraham's altar in Exodus, I was the Passover lamb. In Leviticus, I was the faithful high priest. In Numbers, I was the promised land. In Deuteronomy, I was the city of refuge. In Joshua, I was a scarlet thro uh, uh, thread in Rahab's window. In Judges, I was the judge. In Ruth, I was the kinsman redeemer. In Samuel, I was the trusted prophet. In Kings and Chronicles, I was the reigning king. In Ezra, I was the faithful scribe. In Nehemiah, I was the rebuilder of everything that's broken down. In Esther, I was Mordecai sitting at the gate. In Job, I was the, your redeemer whoever lives. In Psalms, I'm your shepherd you shall not want. In Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, I am wisdom. In Song of Solomon, I'm the beautiful bridegroom. In Isaiah, I'm the suffering servant. In Jeremiah and Lamentations, I'm the weeping prophet. In Ezekiel, I'm the wheel within the wheel. In Daniel, I'm the fourth man in the fiery furnace. In Hosea, I'm the faithful lover at all time. In Joel, I baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In Obadiah, I'm our, your great savior. In Jonah, I'm the missionary to all the world. In Micah, I'm the messenger with beautiful feet. In Nahum, I'm your avenger. In Habakkuk, I'm the watchman praying for revival. In Zephaniah, I'm the Lord mighty to save. In Haggai, I'm the restorer of your lost fortune. In Zechariah, I am your fountain, and in Malachi, I'm the son of righteousness. Amen. Maybe kind of like that, only much, much better. To hear him get to the end of that sermon and to say, disciples, the Old Testament? Yeah, it was all about me, all about me. And brothers and sisters, you have this treasure in your hand. If you own a Bible on your phone, whatever it might be, you have a treasure that Paul says here is for your good and your encouragement and your instruction and to give you hope as you step out into the week this week. There is truth there that will do it. And so I would just encourage us Christians, read and relish the first three quarters of your Bible. Because I'm here to tell you, if, if you like the Old Testament, you're gonna love the New Testament. 
and you'll love the word of God because it's all about him. Amen. The role of the Old Testament in the life of the believer, I pray it's a blessing to you.